Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 150 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, and now also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc. Acoustic Disc is your one-stop shop for all things Grisman, and also some pretty legendary recordings as well. We're going to talk a bit about that here um, during the podcast, obviously, and uh, the, just the, the stuff that he is putting out and that he has access to to put out now just directly via the internet is incredible. He's got a podcast as well with Danny Barnes that you can check out at that website. I'll have a link in the description as well. His books, uh, merch, everything. So go to AcousticDisc.com. I'm really excited for this pairing for the uh, for the next year here. So Acoustic Disc, thank you so much. Um, obviously, this interview is with David Grisman, and I still, as I'm doing this intro and, and post-editing, I still can't believe it happened. One of the things, by the way, for this to happen uh, was um, Dave's not a beer drinker. David's not a beer drinker at all, but he does imbibe in another thing, and so... Uh, uh, he didn't want it to be mandolins and beer, man. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that more in part two. I think he was more of a mandolins and weed guy. So, but anyway, um, that, that was, uh, one of the funniest things that, that started this chain of events while doing this interview and, and working on the editing for this podcast. I kept thinking about that saying that where people are like, um, never meet your heroes. Well, obviously, uh, their hero isn't David Grisman, if that's the case. David is, I've met him a few times in person. He's always been absolutely amazing. And I mean, to be honest, David, the dog doesn't need to do the Mandolins and Beer podcast. Everything about him is out there. That guy has given everything to the Mandolin community and the fact that he did this episode. That means so much more. It actually it made it kind of tough. I was really nervous doing this um, because a lot of times, a lot of the players I'm introducing to some people, to, to some of the players, and like when you get to a guy with Grisman who's got, I mean, you can read about anything about him. Uh, he's well known. He's probably one of the most, probably the most known mandolin player, you know, especially in this community. And so I just decided we're going to talk about whatever dog wants to talk about. And it was amazing and, um, you know, it went on for an hour and a half and he's everything. It was everything I would, I hoped it would be and more. So I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. I do have a few people I really want to thank for this. Um, Sam Grisman, obviously, uh, dog without saying, uh, his manager, Craig though, really, um, really put this together. And I, I want to thank Craig and, um, uh, and you know, I, and, and, and all you, I mean, the fact that this is episode number 150 it really blows my mind. And, and to be quite honest, there, uh, there wouldn't be 150 episodes without all the support and all the listeners out there. I truly, truly appreciate you. Um, I can't thank you enough. It has been a, it's been a game changer for me. And you guys are a big part of that. And I'm looking forward to another 150 episodes, I sure hope. And uh, yeah. So anyway... Um, the other thing I want to thank is my sponsors, because again, without them, uh, this would be a way more difficult process trying to find the time to do these to do these things. So um, let's get into the sponsors. Peghead Nation with Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors and Roots Music. They've got the best lineup of mandolin instructors out there, in my opinion. Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning. 
Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. The best part? Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use their promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. They're going to be at IBMA as well this year, and so am I. More about that next episode, though. Pava Mandolins, Pava, dedicated to building for the impassioned player. Right there in Austin, Texas. Some beautiful, beautiful mandolins. Speaking of beautiful mandolins, have you ever thought about making one yourself? If you decide to go that route, do not start without buying the Ultimate Bluegrass Mandolin Construction Manual by Roger Simonoff. Go to SimonoffBooks.com, go to the shop, buy this book. It's only $44.95, and I'm guessing will save you years of work. It's got everything you need to build a Bill Monroe-style F5 mandolin. It's so good, the introduction is by Stephen Gilchrist. That says a whole lot right there. This book is on the bookshelf of all the best luthiers. And if you want to build yourself a mandolin, then go to SimonoffBooks.com today and get yourself a copy of this legendary mandolin construction manual. And of course, you don't have to build, you can always buy. If you're going to buy, go to ElderlyInstruments.com. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experience to the beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I mention mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. Now in their 50th year, they're family-owned and operated, they ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at Elderly.com or call them 517-372-7880. And last but not least, y'all, at the very end of this episode, I'm going to be debuting a brand new track from fellow Grisman fan, an incredible mandolin player. He's got a brand new album coming out on September 16th called What You Need to Prove. And that's Thomas Castle. And the album's fantastic. And the song at the end of this episode is called Diggs the Bounty Hunter. Um, I'm really excited to talk to Thomas here in a few weeks as well. So let's get into the episode with David Grisman. Thank you all so much for, uh, for being with me here to episode 150. I truly, truly appreciate it. By the way, the song samples in this episode are all available at Acoustic Disc. I have links to each song in the description of this podcast and at mandolinsandbeer.com. Just click it. It'll take you right to the album. You can pick the format you want. It's incredible. Acoustic Disc. Once again, a new sponsor here at Mandolin and Beer. And uh, let's get into the episode with Dog. Cheers, everybody. All right, it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast the dog, David Grisman. David, how are you? I'm fine, Daniel. How are you? I am. Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, this is really, really uh, exciting, and this is a huge goal marked off for me. Um, you know, when I started this podcast 150 episodes ago, I started wow. with um, I started with a list of all my favorite mandolin players that I figured how many episodes could you do. And then I, you know, I sent 10 emails and, and I had some names at the top of the page that I was like, eventually, you know, as milestones, it would be great to get these people. And your name <laughs> was right at the top of this list. So oh, I appreciate that. I'm sorry it took so long, but, you oh, know, man, no worries, man, at all. So um, first thing we should mention, you have a podcast as well with Danny Barnes that is really excellent. 
And um, I think if people haven't heard it yet, they should tune into it because it's really a cool way of um, the way you discuss some of your albums and then you know, yeah. get to hear the tunes. It's uh, it's really only at AcousticDisc.com. You know, I haven't like uh, figured out how to distribute it out, outside of that, but um, I figured I'm trying to attract people to that website anyway, so might as well have it there. Yeah, and what you're doing with that website right now is so exciting. I mean, every month almost, there's some new incredible album that is digitally being released with bonus tracks. How, let's talk a little bit about the Acoustic Disc website and what the, uh, the future of music looks like because it's kind of, you're, once again, you're kind of breaking ground with, this, with the way you're releasing these, man. Well, years ago, it's funny you mentioned the future of music. I, there was a book called The Future of Music that I read about maybe 20 years ago, and it really pointed towards the the digital space, and uh, which led me to, you know, try to make this stuff available digitally. It took, uh, and we, uh, it took about two or three years to get the, uh, this section of our old website called Acoustic Oasis um, up and running. We still had to use somebody else's platform, um, a company called Nugs, and there's still some stuff there that you can, you know, still get downloads there. But, um, you know, it's always, it, it's like a beautiful uh, thing, you know, like for music you know we don't have to manufacture anything or ship anything or have anything returned or broken or stolen all of which have happened over the course of my 50 years in the record business 50 plus actually almost 60 wow. but um you know it, it it always intrigued me and um you know it enabled us to uh to put out things that you know had such a a limited uh relationship with what's popular uh that it, it wouldn't make business sense to really manufacture it and uh, and as the years went by the digital space more or less overtook the physical space and um fortuitously uh the beginning of uh 2020 um our partners in acoustic disc wanted to retire so we took a chance and bought them out and then along came the pandemic which was a horrible thing but it was a fortunate thing for us because i lost all my gigs but uh gave uh, tracy my wife and i an opportunity to establish this business that we could operate out of our house. And so the first decision we made was to stop making physical product, you know, mostly because it just wasn't an economic, uh, it had no ec economic viability really uh, for us because most of the CDs are sold at gigs, and when the gigs went bye-bye, um, so did the CD manufacturing. So it gave us an opportunity to uh, 
uh, rebuild a, a new website uh, and uh, bring it up to date and uh, really get into it, which we still are, you know, it's a day-to-day <laughs> thing. And it's enabled me having this, you know, not touring, which, you know, I spent many decades doing that and it just became increasingly more expensive and difficult and uh so it's sort of been a blessing you know at my age uh i'm trying to go for the long haul and uh you know i'm still doing everything i love to do write music and and record music and make records make uh you know they're no no longer physical records but uh, <laughs> yeah i just like what do we call them anymore right <laughs> and you know i i've been a producer for almost 60 years and i pretty much saved everything uh that i had an opportunity to uh to to have in my archive so and i spent about eight years transferring it uh in my studio in California, uh, to the digital domain. So, uh, that's really, uh, given me, I just go to my computer and search around for more stuff. And, <laughs> yeah. and I, I keep discovering stuff. I didn't even, I hadn't even heard, you know, no kidding. Oh yeah. I mean the rehearsals for the, um, the first quintet album. Oh yeah. That was the tape I, I found. History, <laughs> you know what I mean. In, in this oh, world, it was just like you know? wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, well, I'm glad you like that. You know, um, you know, it's not. It's a living room tape. It's actually pretty well recorded. It's probably with one or two microphones, and um, you know, it's surprising how together that was for you know how uh, you know. Short, short of time the band had been rehearsing. It's really interesting. I, you know, and I would say 95% of the interviews I have done, that album has been a game changer for all these players. And the most mind-bending thing to me about it is 30 years from now, some kid is going to buy a mandolin and he's going to stumble across this record and it's going to sound like it came out yesterday to them you mean the original the original one it yeah Yeah. i mean talk (laughs) about landmark recording you know that's amazing and it's it's every every level of player that i interview young kids you know tail it tail quail yeah yeah he's he's great so Um, good well it's sort of been a pleasant kind of albatross around my neck you know (laughs) i mean years ago somebody came up to me and said you know you will never do anything better than that you know wow and uh, that's that's debatable (laughs) i I mean i didn't let that stop me but you know you have to uh 
keep coming up with different stuff. I mean, you just can't play the same songs for 30, 40 years. And, and I, I enjoy writing tunes and hopefully they're all different enough to, um, and good enough to be appreciated. Um, and, but you know, I, I'm definitely proud of that, that record, but, um, you know, <laughs> a lot of people stopped listening after that, or I don't know about a lot, but um, I have done a lot of good work since then, too. Oh, a ton, man. I mean, mm -hmm. just all of them. I mean, I look forward to to everything that comes out. I mean, the the trio record that came out a few years ago with with you uh -huh. and, and Danny and Samson, killer mm -hmm. album. Thanks, man. Yeah, man, absolutely. And, and and I really do think you're one of those guys that um, all the right people listen to everything you put out, I think. You know what I mean? And those are the people holding mandolins. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Well, I can't argue with that. You know, it's been a real boon to, uh, to meet and get together and play and work uh, with Danny, who's a neighbor of ours. And we get together about once a week. And, and he's just... Uh, you know, an amazing musician. He he's in, knows so many styles and and is a great reader and um, just uh, a great. Uh, I I mean, he's become my new disciple. You know, he comes over and we just work on these tunes that I've been writing and arranging them, and I write out harmonies and. Uh, we just have a great time working on it. That's what I've always loved doing is working on music, you know. I mean, I never really got into this to be on a stage. No uh, kidding. That, yeah, no, I, I I just wanted to learn how to play like that, you know. And at the time, it meant bluegrass. And, um, you know, that's that was my mission. I, you know, I was never really career-oriented and... And, you know, my band was more or less a, a, a fortuitous accident. <laughs> I never really thought you, a mandolin player could have a, an instrumental band, you know, that was successful. Uh, but uh, people like Tony Rice and Daryl Anger and Todd Phillips and Mike Marshall, and they showed up and wanted to play this music. And, you know, I had to... I had to uh, to do it. When you first started playing, I mean, you were a big Bill Monroe fan. Mm -hmm. What was it in between, I mean, that led you, because again, this album, the first album, and then everything after it, you know, it's, 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 there was really nothing kind of like it. 
at the time. It, I mean, did you just have this in your head from a combination of other things you were listening to? Because it's it really is so different than anything that was out there at the time. Well, you know, uh, I've always liked all kinds of music. Uh, I got really smitten with bluegrass uh, when I was about 15 years old and uh, and took up the mandolin uh, because uh, another friend already got a banjo and uh, <laughs> we all wanted to be banjo players. And, um, uh, you know, I... I it was just a, a great uh, stroke of luck that four blocks away lived uh, this incredible person named Ralph Rinsler, who was a great mandolin player and a folklorist and just a, an amazing Renaissance type man. And he took uh, three uh, high school kids under his wing and uh, we went from the ground floor up to the, you know, the top floor of, you know, bluegrass, old-time folk music uh, kind of uh, information. And, uh, you know, but I always, my interest was always kind of uh, in just learning uh, how to play the mandolin and and uh, and discovering all this wonderful music, you know. Um, I didn't realize that <laughs> that uh, it would mean if if you were capable enough, you'd end up on you know playing gigs on stages and uh, recording jingles and doing whatever to make a living as a musician. You know? which was a kind of a challenge to be a mandolin player in 1962. Uh, in fact, you had to learn, you had to learn a bunch of other stuff. Sure. <laughs> uh, to uh, uh, survive, let alone support a family, which happened pretty early on for me as well. How long did it take you? You were on the, you were born on the East Coast? Yeah. Hackensack, New Jersey. Hackensack, no kidding. Yeah, Thelonious yeah. Monk wrote a tune called Hackensack. Love Monk. Yeah, that was where Rudy Van Gelder had his studio for a while. Yeah. So what brought you to the West Coast? Uh, well, um, music, uh, more or less. I had, uh, I had a few friends here. Jerry Garcia was one. Of them, and um, you know, back in the early '60s, mid '60s, um, there were little pockets of, I'd say, urban kids that were interested in traditional music. And uh, you, I don't know if you're familiar with this. Uh, there was a thing called the Map of the World. Uh, a guy named Rick Shubb, a good friend of mine, and uh, somebody else put this together. And the map of the world was like Berkeley, California, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts, <laughs> you know, Greenwich <laughs> Village, <laughs> <Yeah>. L.A., you know, <laughs> just a, and they were all these like-minded uh, kids, really, who were interested in, in roots, what you call roots music. And we 
started meeting each other, you know, either, you know, like my friend Eric Thompson showed up in, in Greenwich Village and crashed at my uh, apartment. And, uh, and then I made a trip in 1965, the first time I came to California and just more or less fell in love with it for, you know, just the, the, the climate and the, just the attitude and uh, ultimately moved out a few years later, uh, mostly to uh, establish a, a record uh, producing uh, company that what wasn't really successful, but it just uh, it got me out here and well now I'm in Washington State so not in California, but I was there for 45 years. It was a very fertile area for music. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, there was a time in my life where I moved, I don't know, 20 some odd times in a two-year period. Wow. Uh, it was pretty crazy, but, <laughs> you know, I've always been a seeker, you know. And a torchbearer, too. I mean, aside from just putting out like some incredible music, you you the the music that you've turned other people onto by using your platform of being like, well, I know I have people who listen to me. You guys should check out like Dave Apollon or or yeah. uh, you know Jethro Burns or you know. You well, people like what's funny you mentioned Jethro turned me on to Dave Apollon and. Jerry Garcia turned me on to uh, Oscar Elliman, and um, you know I went. You know when Jethro told me I, you know I met Jethro in 1973. I went to take a lesson from him in Evanston, Illinois, and I, I had found out that he taught every Tuesday afternoon at a the music store there so i just booked myself a lesson i was driving across the country and i planned my trip to end up in his music store uh on a tuesday afternoon <laughs> that's awesome man <laughs> and uh went in for a lesson and and uh, actually there was a young kid waiting for his lesson and and jethro asked him if he could wait a little longer because he had a a guy here that was pretty good player, and uh, he came from California, and, and that kid was Don Sternberg. <laughs> I knew that's amazing, well, man. Well, I didn't know at the time, but <laughs> wow. Um, and I asked Jethro who who he thought the greatest mandolin player was, and he said Dave Apollon. And I immediately went, uh, started looking for Dave Apollon records, and within uh, six months, I found them all, <laughs> and I. Uh, I took a, an ad out in the Musicians Union newspaper uh, looking for information, photographs, etc. on Dave Applin, and I, several people responded and sent me stuff, and I just, you know, 
<laughs> I was looking for it. And, you know, if you look for something hard enough, you're probably going to find it. Man, and you're doing this all before Google. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> this isn't easy. Like, before the internet. Now, you know, you can find stuff on your phone. You know, you can read all about Dave Applon or and see videos. It's amazing, you know. But the desire has to be there. Uh, you know, uh, you have to know about it and like it, you know. And uh, I just, you know, Duke Ellington said there's only two kinds of music, good and bad. <laughs> right. So I always, you know, I figure I, I like the good kind. And, you know, that I've got 30,003 songs on the phone I'm talking to you. Um, 512 gigabytes and you know uh, everything from Mozart to uh, Count Basie the Stanley Brothers the Carter family the Leuven Brothers Benny Goodman uh, Shostakovich you know uh, <laughs> uh, just go on and on Bill Evans John Coltrane you know Miles Davis uh, and a lot of, uh, you know, fairly unknown people, Jimmy Jufrey and, uh, oh, Niels Henning Orsted Peterson, just, uh, you know, I'm into all kinds of stuff, you know, and for you, you know, uh, it, one of the benefits of touring all those years is I'd go to record stores, you know, pawn shops, used bookstores, you know, music stores while well, I'd be, you know, in Ames, Iowa or whatever, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I got to find a lot of stuff and meet a lot of cool people. I think the advantage you have too, that, you know, it's great to have the internet and it's great to have everything accessed at your fingertips. But I think the old way of going back and having to hunt things down and not be able to buy <laughs> 10 Dave Applon yeah. albums or you know what I mean like you you yeah. live with that record for a while you know you absorb right. it and now yeah you know now you can listen to half that song and think of something else and be on to like five other things in in two minutes yeah right um well that's you know the problem with instant gratification you know I mean I spent a week in the Bronx looking for a mandolin in the in a barber shop that I never found. I mean, you know, for everything I found, uh, there were things I did, you know, <laughs> <laughs> failed missions right and left, you know, but, you know, it, it, uh, it was all good, you know, I mean, because when I find, when I got something, I appreciated it. And, uh, and yeah, checked it out in depth, you know, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, that's and and I'm just as as bad as all that too. I mean, I remember having you know like tone poems, even when just when CDs were around, you know. And yeah, you know, I was a young young guy with a getting ready to start a family. I couldn't afford to buy fifty CDs at a time, and that tone poems, you know, it sat in my car. It was I got in, it was the CD player in the car. I <laughs> drove around, it was oh, in it. Yeah. I, you know, it was in there for months. It seemed like you know you absorb right. it. You know, I still do a lot of listening in, in the car. You know. Uh, when I'm there, you know, I mean, we we went to Seattle yesterday, and which is you know like a four hour round trip, and I I took three projects with me to you know 
listen to, you know, because that's, you know, I mean, listening is the most important thing in, in music, I think, you know, whether, whether you're a musician or, you know, it, it, if you, you know, listen carefully, you pick up on certain details. And it takes me a long time to really absorb uh, something, you know, when making records, you do a, you have usually a couple of takes of a song to check out it takes me a long time to really absorb what's all everything that's there and you know it takes repeated listening of course repeated listening you sometimes you get bored or sick of it so it's i i like to keep a lot of a lot of plates spinning on the <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i can go from one to the other you know <laughs> Was it was it tough for you? I mean, I, one thing I love about all the stuff coming out on acoustic disc too is they're like high def mastered. There's a lot of thought put into it, and you know the digital realm obviously does not sound like the analog realm. Well, it's gotten very close now. Initially, that was true. Initially, um, uh, CDs sounded pretty bad, um, but they've pretty much ironed out all the kinks in that but still you know if you're going from an analog source uh, you know that's it's not going to really sound better than that i mean it could be improved slightly in certain ways i mean what i found is if you if you add something you lose something else i mean um but uh you know it enables i i, I realized that there was higher a higher definition or higher definitions uh than cds you know so i i determined after you know a long time of thinking about it and testing things that uh 24-bit 96khz was a noticeable upgrade from what they call red book uh 16-bit cd quality so i decided to uh you know when i record something digitally uh which is just too convenient to and tape got to be real expensive i mean i was oh, paying yeah. like over 60 dollars a reel for you know 15 minutes or less Wow. of music and you know uh <laughs> you know and now you know in digital performer i mean you can you know you, you can just do miles and miles of tape for basically no expense and it's so easy to edit you know and manipulate and um you know they they used to call me the Rajah of the razor blade. <laughs> but I really got into editing tape, you know, um, which I learned from my friend Peter Siegel, who's um, a fellow maniac uh, back in the 60s. And a lot of people might not realize, like, that was how, you know, now it's so easy to edit things, you know, I'll edit this podcast yeah. with a mouse, <laughs> click and point, delete it. Right. Back in the day, recording to tape, you, you had to physically, with a razor blade, cut tape, yeah. tape it together. 
right and that not that not to mention the fact that you'd have a piece of tape wrapped around your neck and you'd have a few on the floor or <laughs> taped to the tape deck and they all look the same so you know <laughs> yeah. i mean i've driven a more engineer crazy you know um because i it, i didn't do it myself i would i would do it at home i'd take the cassettes home of a session and then i would when i figured out what take i'd like or what two takes i'd dub them off onto a, an akai tape machine and then i'd edit those you know uh, tapes and then i'd go back into the studio and tell the engineer how to cut it and and finally uh, uh, an engineer friend of mine uh, bob shoemaker said hey you know you should be doing all this i will set you up and make sure you don't screw it up but you know and that was mixing and everything so i kind of went reluctantly into that zone <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> you know and then it, it took me a long time to get out of it you know um but uh i i love doing that stuff and um uh, I think I'm getting better at it, even though I'm, you know, an old man now. Oh, man. But uh, I uh, I still enjoy it, and now I don't have to sit around in an airport in between, uh, you know, <laughs> while I'm working on something. Yeah. Are, you, are there any plans to ever go back out on the road, or are you pretty much? Well, I, I don't have, you know, um there are a lot of reasons that I really don't want to travel, uh, at least by plane. Uh, and, um, I, you know, never say never. I, I, I told my agent, you know, Hey, if you want to take me off your roster, you can, I won't be mad, but you know, I, I, I mean, I love playing music and, uh, I realized that, somebody out there wants to hear this stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i also want to survive so i can keep doing it you know as long as i can and uh i mean the truth is i i play better in the living room you know <laughs> i i you know and uh but you know i'm I'm waiting for for you know somebody to make me an offer that I can't refuse, and that's not just about money either. I mean, a lot of the you know, hey, uh, it's not my favorite thing to do for a lot of reasons. Not, and the music isn't one of them. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a hassle, man. It's, yeah, and, and and you know, most of the gigs I get offered are not. Play, you know, I'm spoiled, man. I got I played in Carnegie Hall, not Carnegie Recital Hall, Carnegie Hall three times before I was 21 years old. Man, that's awesome. Just by accident, you know. But you know, I, it kind of spoiled me, you know. Well, that's, that's, I don't know, spoil. I mean, that's hard, hard work gets you that, man. I mean, you play those venues because you earned those venues. <laughs> you know. Well, you not should... then. I didn't. You know, I was just in this jug band that got you know in a couple of bands that got lucky and invited to play there you know and um but you know i've played some great places and i just like concert halls that sound good 
I don't really like playing in bars or clubs. I mean, um, some clubs I, I do, but in gen I don't like to play festivals. I mean, nothing against large amounts of people, but, you know, if you don't, I, I'm about the music, you know. I'm not about a bunch of screaming people uh, that can't wait to hear what's coming after you or right. <laughs> whatever, you know. It just, unfortunately, I got, or fortunately, I got a, a couple of years off where I couldn't work and it made me realize a bunch of things. And uh, I'm a happy camper doing what I'm doing right now. It's not so much that I'm against something else. It's like I really enjoy what I'm doing. And I think that's uh, important and, and, and a real blessing, a real blessing, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, like you said, when we got on the phone today, you, you, you said you think you're busier now than you, than you, than you have been, you know. Yeah. And, and, that's and it's home, all man. non, it's all, most of it or almost all of it is non-wasted energy. I mean. When you're a touring musician, you, you've got a lot of hours into doing kind of useless things, just getting you to the gig, whether you're sitting in a van or, you know, I mean, you can only sit there with headphones on so many hours. Uh, it's just not productive. I mean, I, and, and you're talking to a guy that made records sitting on airplanes. <laughs> I was just going to say. You know, I could edit music, you know, I had the programs on my computer and I'd sit there with headphones on and uh, do what I do. But, you know, this is it's just much better not not to be doing that. I, I love this new thing, uh, the, the new um, release that's on acoustic discs, by the way, uh, Dog Works. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Oh, man. Absolutely. And again, it's just 1963 to 75, which is, you know, just like drooling now for, for all the all Yeah, the I'm working on volume out. two. I mean, I've got them roughed out, you know, uh, probably five volumes and six. This volume six might be just all the stuff I've written up till whenever that happens that I haven't put out. Wow. But, uh, yeah, I'm working on volume two now. And uh, we're going to put out this. I'll give you a preview. Um, we're putting out a great uh, album that, uh, that was uh, recorded for Flying Fish in 1986 by uh, Bertram Levy and Peter Ostrushko. called First Generation, and uh, Bertram is a great concertina and fiddler and uh, banjo player. He's a neighbor of ours, but uh, it's a great album, and Peter Ostrushko is just magnificent on it, and uh, uh, that's going to be our next uh, release. Uh, 
coming up pretty soon. Oh, that would be uh, great. I'm working on uh, the next podcast. My goal is to put out a new project every month and a new podcast every month. And I've also got several more books in the works. Oh, do you really? Of my tunes. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, there's... (laughs) I mean, I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of tunes, you know. Yeah, yeah, man. And 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 this dog works project has enabled me to, you know, I I've always recorded more than I used or needed, and uh, uh, I have a lot of, and I, you know, have quite a extensive uh, live archives whether it's on digital audio tape or reel-to-reel tape or cassettes or, uh, you know, in all kinds of formats. Um, so, I, you know, th- this Dog Works project is enabling me to put out things that, you know, are just different versions of, of things from the studio and from uh, live gigs. The next volume will be starting with the, uh, you know, pretty much the Tony Rice era. Uh, even though, uh, you know, I'm doing it, <clears throat> they're all of my tunes, but in the order they were written. And some of their performances are later performances. But, um, you know, like, for example, there's a, there's a tune that I wrote for the film eat my dust where where emd came from and i I never recorded it in anywhere else and uh, you know uh it's actually a more or less a guitar duet i'm playing rhythm for tony oh no kidding uh, and uh and then there's a a version of ricochet with just three mandolins from the live concert in our first japanese tour and um you know, all kinds of things that that I can make available now on this project, you know. Um, there's some things from a session I did in uh, early 2020, just before the pandemic was really discovered with uh, Sam and uh, Frank Vignola. Oh, my gosh, Frank Vignola. Frank came over for a few days, and, and we recorded 18 tunes. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, I think I put uh, maybe two of them out on uh, on, the la- on the volume one. I think Japan and uh, one other.
but anyhow, um, it's it's fun and it's nostalgic and it, um, you know, I just thought, well, I, I should put all of these, all of these pieces in, in in kind of one project, which is a, a number of volumes, but. Uh, you know, just keeps me busy, you know. Yeah, it's awesome. And I love that it's called The Collected Compositions because you are a composer, you know, and I, I think that's important for people to realize. And and I think especially because, you know, maybe people sometimes don't think of the mandolin in that sense, you know, kind right. of composition. Well, some of these pieces, you know, even on that first volume, are, I don't play at all on them. You know, they're pieces I wrote for movies that have Dixieland bands and... You know, um, they're, you know, for a movie, usually you write, uh, you know, whatever the scene requires. And several of these movies have been period pieces. So, that, you know, you kind of write in the style of that period. But, uh, yeah, I, I seem to keep coming up with, you know, new tunes. And I really try not to repeat myself too much, you know. It's hard to escape uh, yourself. But uh, And I thought, you know, I probably 15 years ago, I thought I was really through composing, you know. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Well, you get, I don't know, you know, moving up here and having, a, a, it's like a calmer uh, environment. And uh, I was doing all this traveling and running around and, you know, it was just very hectic. And, uh, you know, just being in one place for this long, that's like a very calm environment and a, a beautiful place. Uh, this stuff keeps pouring out. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And it's pretty, it's pretty, you know, challenging, actually. I've written some pieces that are, you know, technically challenging and, you know, one thing that's changed, I used to just make up this stuff on the mandolin and, you know, never wrote it down. And, you know, finally when I started putting these books together, I, I, you know, got the Sibelius program and, you know, learned how to uh to write out pieces and the first few volumes i had help with and then i decided well i can do this myself and uh so now when i get an idea i start writing i write it out as a which actually makes it harder to memorize because before i was making it up and it, it, when I was finished, I, I had it memorized. Uh, in fact, I, I would get an idea and 
I would never tape it. I, I, I would say, well, if I can't remember this tomorrow, it wasn't memorable. And and I lost a few good ones, I think, along the way. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> and, but now I start writing it out right away. So by the time I'm done, then I have to learn it. And then I write out a harmony and then I have to learn that. And I like to memorize it. But when you write something out and read it off the paper, it's it kind of blocks the, the memorization process or, or slows it down a bit. So... Um, but it's all good, you know, at least then um, uh, then I can hand it to uh, Tracy or Danny and they can start reading it. You know, Tracy's been really learning a lot of my tunes. I mean, we've been <laughs> trapped here together for, <laughs> for several years and, uh, you know, she's quite a good musician. She plays bass and... Uh, she also plays uh, guitar, and she's she decided she wanted to learn all of my melodies on the guitar, and which is quite a thing, you know. And and uh, so we play just about every day, and we have little arrangements, and I play harmonies, and and you know she, you know, she's very dedicated to that. That's awesome. And man. Uh, yeah, so we we have a lot of fun, and of course she does the bookkeeping and acoustic the orders every day even if they're digital orders they still have to be processed and it's a little cottage industry but you know it's very enjoyable and and uh, you know we're we're very grateful that we can do that all right, and that is part one of the episode with David Grisman. Part two, we started off talking about how he started his own record label and all that amazing stuff as well. Uh, and then, right here, I want to uh, premiere a brand new track from Thomas Castle. Thomas is a huge Grisman fan and, and puts on some uh, Grisman-themed gigs around, and he's got a tune called Digs the Bounty Hunter that's coming out on his brand new album called What You Need to Prove, and I believe that album comes out next week, September 16th so be sure to get that and i'll have thomas on as a guest too to uh, talk about that album but here is digs the bounty hunter uh and i'll see you with part two next week cheers everybody